Welcome to the Pulp Nostalgia Audiocast. In this episode, we have part two of Death of a Dead Man by Waylon Rice, originally published in the September 1945 issue of Thrilling Detective. Rice was a pseudonym of Norman A. Daniels, one of the most prolific writers in the thrilling books. This story is included in our recent release from Brick Pickle Media, Thrilling Detective Pulp Tales, Volume 3, now available in print and ebook format. It collects six vintage pulp novels from the tattered pages of Thrilling Detective. It can be ordered from Amazon or any other bookstore. Or you can get a discounted price by ordering direct from our website, and that link is in the show notes. This podcast is a Brick Pickle Media production, copyright 2020. For more from Brick Pickle Media, visit www.pulpaudiocast.com. If you'd like to support our efforts, you can find a link to all of our books and our entire online store on the website. And with that... On with the show. Chapter 3. Motive for Murder Back in town, Clint Byron visited police headquarters again, kept out of Bradley's way, and went to the police lab. He was well known there, and nobody objected when he commenced puttering around. He provided himself with a comparison microscope and a fingerprint developing set, which he took to the corner of the lab where he could not be bothered. In 20 minutes, he knew who his client was. The son of Tony Page, who Batten had shot down. There's no arguing about those sets of prints, one from the cigarette lighter the prisoner had handled, the other from the silverback brushes. Byron wondered what to do with this information. Proving his client's identity didn't help things, and only served to establish cold premeditation of his crime. But there was a certain amount of elation in the fact that he progressed further than Lieutenant Bradley. The lawyer toyed with the idea the young redhead had been talked into committing the crime. That wouldn't help either unless there was an out-and-out intimidation involved. Yet Clint Byron could not quite imagine young Page as the type to sit down and calmly plot a murder like this. Fadden was going to pay the penalty for his crime anyway, and would probably suffer a great deal more than he would from the pain induced by a bullet that plowed through his head and killed him instantly. Byron went over to one of the lab technicians. Bob, you know, I've been appointed counsel for that young fellow who killed Fadden. He's a rat and doesn't deserve any help, but I'm making a routine examination of the case. Can I see the gun he used? And maybe the bullet... The technician shook his head. No soap, Clint. You work against the cops now. Bradley would have my scalp if I helped you in any way. Sorry. But you do have the gun. And the bullet? The technician nodded. Sure, we've already tested it. The gun fired that bullet. No question about that. And see, the slug went straight through Fadden's skull and hit McCarthy in the neck. The doctors dug it out. Maybe I should be telling you this, but what the heck. The case is practically closed anyhow. It certainly is, Clint Byron groaned, for he fully believed that. If there was only something he could do, perhaps by prying deeper into young Page's background, I might learn a few facts. He could have possibly saved him from meeting the justice he deserved, but Clint Byron was suddenly intent upon saving his client's life. It was an odd feeling, as the detective even solely concerned with exacting punishment. There was little he could do that night. When he went to his home in a residential hotel, it was late, and the only person in the lobby was a girl who jumped to her feet as he entered. As she approached him, he stopped dead in his tracks. She was that kind of girl. Lovely with the freshness of youth, brown hair skillfully arranged, cool blue eyes that were a trifle red from weeping. Curved lips and two provocative dimples which intrigued him. He had never seen her before in his life. Mr. Byron, has he, has he talked to you? Young Paige, you mean? She bit her lip. He must have, because you know his name. He, he isn't bad, Mr. Byron. Just hot-headed and full of grief that almost made him go crazy. I know. Suppose we sit down and talk it over. 
I'm trying to help him. He won't let me do much, and I need all the information about him I can get. See your boyfriend? Well, well, not exactly. We just know one another. I knew he was going to do something. He changed so since, since his father was killed, but I never thought he could take a man's life. What's your name? She shook her head. I won't tell you. If Harry had wanted my help, he'd have sent you to see me. I only came because I was worried so about him, but he made me promise that, that if anything happened, I would stay out of it. I've got to keep that promise, Mr. Byron. I know he was in co- arrested. I was in court with my uncle when he was first brought in. I saw you there and heard the judge appoint you as his attorney. But you won't talk, Clint Byron arose abruptly. All right, I think it's about everything then, Miss Whatever Your Name Is. Good night. He left her sitting there and walked rapidly to the staircase. This led into a corridor ending at the rear door of the hotel and he was out of it like a shot. When the girl emerged from the front door, he was ready to follow her. Once more, he put into practice his training as a detective. It was coming in handy. She walked rapidly north. Byron was a full block behind her, but always ready to act if she hailed a taxi or suddenly vanished into some doorway. Twenty minutes later, she turned at the entrance of a four-story private dwelling, obviously the home of wealthy people. Byron made no move to stop her. Clint Byron waited a minute or two and stepped to the door himself. The nameplate startled him. It read, Alan Drake. Drake, the politician who feared and hated Fred Fadden and could have logically been his murderer if Byron's client hadn't done the job first. But the idea of someone attached to Drake's household being a friend of young Page's was intriguing. It aroused the no longer latent detective instincts which had controlled Clint for several years. He determined upon boldness and rang the bell. A trim maid answered the ring. He gave her his widest smile. A friend of mine, uh, Miss Janice Johnson, just walked in here. At least I'm quite certain it was Janice, and I want to see her badly. I am sorry, the maid said. There's no one by that name here. No guess either. You must have seen Miss Nancy come in, sir. Nancy? Yes, sir. Miss Nancy Drake. This is the residence of Alan Drake, sir. Oh. Byron started backing away. Oh, I must have been mistaken. I'm very sorry. Pardon me, please. He was on the verge of making a successful escape when a man stepped out of a room and glanced toward the open door. Byron was framed and he knew this man. It was George Conlon, ex-detective, fired because of his association with Fred Fadden. What was worse, Conlon knew him and instantly came forward. Alan Drake came out also, and, later, the girl who had approached Byron in the hotel lobby. Well, it's Clint Byron, Conlon said. What the devil do the cops want? Oh, oh, my error. You're a lawyer now. What do you want? Alan Drake demanded. Byron went into his song and dance again, hardly expecting to be believed, but he obtained help from an unexpected quarter. Nan Drake stepped forward. She laughed lightly. That's the man. He looked at me so strangely, I was sure he thought he knew me, or he was trying to flirt. Conlon wasn't to be put off quite so easily. Maybe, but when Clint Byron pulls something like this, it's really a mistake. Clint, aren't you the public defender appointed for that young fellow who killed Fadden? It happens I am. Why? Know something, Conlon? Conlon shook his head vigorously. Nothing, except I'd like to do something for that fellow. I'd give a million dollars if I had that kind of money. Look, you don't get paid for this job except a few bucks to court grants. How about taking a retainer from me? And for me, Alan Drake said quickly. Byron shrugged. No, I don't think so, unless you two men are actively interested in my client. For himself, I mean. Not just because he shot a man both you hated and feared. We don't know who Fadden's killer is, Conlon said. Haven't the vaguest idea. We're just making a friendly offer. It's okay if you don't want to take it. I don't, Byron said. Well, I guess that's all there is to it. Good night. 
Sorry I mistook you for someone else, miss. He smiled at the girl. Byron turned and walked into the street. He headed south, proceeded slowly. He half expected the girl would try to meet him somehow, and he was not wrong. When he reached the next corner, she was waiting for him. So you finally decided to talk, he said in a friendly voice. You frightened me into it. I slipped out the back door, came across the court, and threw a gate leading to the side street. My uncle doesn't know I left, and you mustn't tell him. Why did you follow me? To find out what you know. It would be better if you talked, for all three of us, Harry Page included. I met Harry when we attended the same college, she explained. It was almost all the way across the country. He was always good. He worked hard, so his father would not have to send him much money. Then he received a letter saying his father was in trouble. It seems his father saw this this crook who was killed, choking a man to death. Mr. Page didn't say anything because he was afraid to. Then Fadden came to see him with open threats. Mr. Page knew he'd probably be murdered anyhow, so he started for the police station. Only Fadden guessed he'd do just that and waited for him. Harry swore he'd kill Fadden for it, but I thought that was only a lot of talk induced by his grief. He seemed half dazed from the shock. No telling what a hot-headed young fellow will do. What you've told me is obviously the truth, but it doesn't help Harry. In fact, you'd dust off the electric chair if you got on the witness stand with that story. You'd establish premeditation. That's why I didn't want to talk, even to you. What's Conlon doing at your place? I haven't any idea. He's a friend of my uncle. I've got to go back now. Please try to help Harry. I can't make myself think he turned to a murderer. Even when he made all his threats, I never thought he'd go through with them. He wasn't a killer, I tell you. Clint Byron sighed. But witnesses prove he is. So does a gun and a bullet, and Harry's own confession. I'll try to save him from the chair, but it will certainly be handed a stretch. Thanks for telling me this, anyway. He watched her hurry down the street and envied Harry Page. Must be pretty nice, he thought, to have a girl like Nan. But there are even more weighty matters on his mind. What if that girl was lying? What if she urged Harry Page on to kill Fadden? What if she's like her uncle and that ex-cop Conlon? They were smart, conniving men. The type who might have talked Page into this crazy act of revenge. Perhaps Nan was just a pawn in the game, knowingly or unknowingly. What the devil am I thinking of? I'm actually trying to get on the track of someone else as the murderer. Of course young Page did it. I'm being foolish. At any rate, he managed to get rid of the idea that someone else committed the crime or it spurred Page on to do it. The evidence was all against the redhead. Byron's only aim was to save him from the chair. Nothing could prevent a verdict of guilty. But if it was in the second degree, he would be satisfied. If it was manslaughter, he would be elated. Chapter 4. Not a Chance. The next morning, Clint attended the indictment proceedings. They were brief and could have only one result. His client, still anonymous, was held for trial. Bradley was there, of course, with a horse pistol introduced by him as the weapon of murder. Byron had a legal right to examine it. He did, quite thoroughly, and when he handed it back, he was palming one of the remaining five big slugs. He talked briefly to the redhead and learned nothing. He did admit he knew who his client was. For once, Lieutenant Bradley fastened on that kind of information he would have his case complete, and the lawyer knew that Bradley was resorting to every trick at his command to learn the identity of Fadden's killer. Ross Allison, the engineer in charge of the work in front of the courthouse, took the stand and gave a concise testimony that unerringly pointed an accusing, convicting finger at young Page. Byron asked none of the witnesses a single question, a matter over which Lieutenant Bradley gloated. Why don't you turn to Allison? Why not try to rip my testimony to shreds? 
What's the matter, Clint? Lost all that push and vigor you used to have? Or is it because you know darn well we've got that killer on a grease walk leading straight to a death cell? Byron's ire was up, but he controlled it. You're right, Lieutenant. I just haven't got a case, that's all. For my first assignment, this one is certainly a honey. Have you found out who he is yet? I will. He won't talk, but there are ways of tracing a man's identity. This is one of them. He handed the lawyer a folded newspaper, and a box item was Harry Page's picture. Byron knew his client would be recognized now, all right, unless he'd been away for three or four years when, in his age group, his appearance could have changed. We'll hold the trial in a week or two. That's time enough for us to make the identification. A waste of taxpayers' money, if you ask me. Trial won't last two hours, and I'll make you a little bet right here that jury won't even leave the box. I'm no sucker. See you later, Lieutenant. That bullet was burning a hole in his pocket. He wanted to examine it, another symptom of his highly developed detective instinct. He still wouldn't believe the evidence against him. He went to a small suite at the modest hotel, locked the door, and sat down by the window. Taking the bullet out of his pocket, he rolled it between his fingers. The maker's name and the caliber were printed on the side of the shell. Clint Byron picked up his telephone and asked to be connected with the manufacturer. He identified himself and asked about both the gun and the bullet. Oh, uh, yes, the man at the other end of the wire said. We made both the gun and the ammunition. They were special slugs. The gun never was a seller. We discontinued making it a long time ago. How long? Why, I'd say at least 30 years. Thanks. That gun packed a pretty big wallop, didn't it? Too big, the gun factory representative replied. That was the trouble. It kicked too hard and the ammunition was too expensive. Glad to help if there's anything else. Byron hung up and searched for a penknife. With a large blade, he set, up and set about prying the heavy load out of the shell. Carefully, he poured the powder charge into the palm of his hand. There wasn't much. The powder seemed to have deteriorated during all his years since it had been manufactured. Suddenly, Clint Byron gasped and jumped to his feet. How could such a meager charge of powder have sent a bullet ripping all the way through Fred Fadden's skull and still carry force enough to penetrate the detective's neck? Then the lawyer sat down again slowly. Just because this slug happened to have a charge of powder made small by deterioration didn't mean the bullet which killed Fadden to carry a similar charge. Bullets, he knew from experience, are as individual as human beings. The lethal slug might have been backed up with plenty of powder to perform its bloody mission. At any rate, there was no proof it had not. Then, too, the bullet had been fired from the gun. Ballistics proved that beyond the slightest doubt. If he tried to dispute the testimony of the police experts, they would throw a comparison image of the bullet on a screen for the jury to study. There just wasn't a chance of proving Harry Page hadn't murdered Fadden. Because he had. On a hunch, Byron decided to see Page again and try to make him talk. Endeavor to get young Page's cooperation making the case into one motivated by logical sympathy for the killer. He had to do that because he owed it to young Page. Byron was suddenly where the responsibility had been thrust upon him. It was different now, trying to save a man's life. He put on his hat and still occupied with these new thoughts, he walked slowly down the corridor toward the elevators. He didn't see the cleaning woman's pail of water in the corridor until his foot struck it. The pail went over, showering him with dirty water until his trousers were soaked around the cuffs. He muttered something uncomplimentary about his own stupidity and went back to his apartment. There he proceeded to lay out fresh clothes. Cleaning out the pockets of the suit he wore, he came upon the wad of wax paper he had automatically picked up from the courthouse steps soon after the murder. He had forgotten all about the seemingly innocent paper wad. Now he opened it and spread it flat on a table. He felt his throat go dry and his heart began to pound. In a moment, he was on his way to police headquarters. 
There, he had to put a damper on his newfound enthusiasm because Lieutenant Bradley was astute enough to sense that something was going on. He gave the lawyer permission to visit the client in his cell. Harry Page was not especially interested. You're wasting time, Mr. Byron. No matter what you do, I'll insist upon taking the witness stand and admitting I shot Fadden. In a way, I'm sorry I did it, but I did, and that's that. Look here, Byron said. You're being an idiot. You got that gun from someone who? I don't know. I met a man who had the gun to sell and I bought it. I'm not going to involve him, even if I could. You talked to someone about killing Fadden, though. And maybe I know who it was. Never mind about that. Tell me exactly what happened on the courthouse steps. I planned to kill Fadden for days. I knew when he was going to be sentenced. I knew they'd take him out the front door and down those steps. I figured out that if I accosted him at a certain step, I could shoot him and maybe get away. Or get a bullet in the back from one of those detectives. It really didn't matter. But you pulled the gun and pulled the trigger. Of course I did. After that, what happened? Why, I, I'm not too certain. Things happened so fast, I remember standing with the gun in my hand, still level at the spot where Fadden's head had been. One of the detectives was drawing his gun, and suddenly I didn't want to die. So I dropped the gun, that's all. Did George Conlon tell you on which step to stand and do the shooting? Why, he... Page stops ab abruptly. Who's George Conlon? Just a pal of mine, Clint Byron grinned. So, you don't know him. My hunch must have been wrong. Listen, my unknown client, I'm going to ask for trial at once. Tomorrow, if possible, you'll have to agree, but imagine you want to get go over with as soon as possible. Why not? Page shrugged. I'm just making up your t time. It isn't that I don't appreciate what you're trying to do for me, Mr. Byron. Things are just so hopeless, it doesn't make any difference. That's right, Byron conceded. I'll see the DA at once. He left the cell and went straight to the DA's office. There he used considerable guile in asking for a quick trial. Ordinarily, it took weeks before a case could be heard, particularly a murder case. Attorneys for the defense and the prosecution both benefited by this arrangement, for it took plenty of time to organize the case properly. So Byron had to forestall this possible objection. After all, he pointed out, my client hasn't a chance. I don't want to fool around with the case any longer, and he's quite ready to face the consequences. Besides, you're campaigning for re-election, and a quick conviction, fast justice, wouldn't hurt your record any. Do this for me, and I'll find out his identity for you. The DA was impressed. All right, I'll do it. You may be right, and the whole thing is cut and dried anyway. Byron felt like cheering when he headed from the DA's office to City Hall, where he spent two hours examining certain records in various departments having to do with city work. Next, he visited the courthouse and had a talk with Judge Fowler. I may be letting myself in for contempt of court and a lot of other things, he said, but I have to take the chance. Judge, this trial must be held in courtroom C on the third floor. Can you arrange that? I can. And I'm glad to see you're interested in your client, even if there isn't a chance to save him. Byron chuckled. Try to be in court, Judge. You'll see a brand new way of trying a murder case, and ethics are going to be thrown right out the window. Stand by to bail me out if things go haywire, which they probably will. That night, Byron visited the courthouse again. He only prowled around the outside of the building, but when he went back to his hotel, he was thoroughly satisfied. For one thing, he was sure that Harry Page knew George Conlon, and that the ex-detective was implicated in the case. Harry Page would have to be made the talk in order to prove this. But the lawyer had a rapidly developing idea that young Page would open up. He simply had to, or one brand new attorney was going to face disbarment proceedings. If that happened, they wouldn't even take him back on the cops. And Lieutenant Bradley's gloating would be unbearable. Chapter 5. Lethal Bullet In court the following morning, Clint Byron lounged in his chair while the jury was being selected. He showed no particular interest in the jurors, made no objections when D.A. asked pointed questions of them, 
and as a result, the jury was sworn in about an hour after court began. The case started at once. The medical examiner gave testimony as to the cause and manner of death. The detective told how the still unnamed defendant accosted him, fired the shot, then dropped the gun. Byron asked the detective one question. The defendant pointed the gun, fired, and stood there with the weapon still pointed. Is that right? Yes, sir, the detective agreed. It looked as if he had been paralyzed by the realization of what he'd done. You saw smoke and flame come out of the gun? Well, I'm not so sure about that. Things happen so fast. That's all. The lawyer sat down and fiddled with a pencil while depositions from the wounded detective still confined to the hospital were read. His testimony tallied exactly with that of the other detective. Bradley took the stand and told what he knew. Byron waved dismally at the witness when the DA finished his questions. Bradley came over and sat beside the lawyer. You should have raised the devil. After all, the defense attorney thought a case always yells and waves his hands a lot. I'm very tired this morning, Byron said. Besides, you know all the tricks. You might have made a fool out of me. That was what I was hoping for. Ross Allison was on the stand giving a terse eyewitness story of what he had seen. It didn't take long, and Byron watched the jury fidgeting in their seats. They were becoming bored already, and that and each one's mind was made up. Clint Byron arose. Mr. Allison, I won't question you about your testimony. It is obviously the truth, because even my client admits it. However, I should like to know what you were doing on the scaffolding your men were erecting in front of the courthouse that morning. Working, Allison said. I'm short of men, just like everyone else, and I have to pitch in. How many men did you employ before the war, Mr. Allison? 165. How many under your payroll now? Why, uh, about the same number. Yes, I'm sure I paid off 171 men last week. Then you actually have more men than you did before the war. Well, yes, but uh, more work, too. Odd, but I thought contracting engineers like you were having a difficult time of it because of shortages of material. You must be the exception. That's all, Mr. Allison. The DA rested his case. Byron turned around in his chair and eyed the spectators. He saw George Conlon, Alan Drake, and Nan seated well to the rear. He called Nan to the stand. You know this young man? He said, indicating his client. Tell us about him. Nan paled and young Page was squirming uncomfortably and softly cursing his lawyer under his breath. Nan told her story, the same she had told Byron that night when she slipped out of her uncle's house. Lieutenant Bradley beamed. When Clinton Byron sat down again while the DA drew out even more pertinent facts from Nan, Bradley whispered to him, Clint, you're worse than I am at figured. I'm not proud of you. After all, you trained under me, and while you never were a really good cop, I thought you knew better than put a witness on the stand who furnishes the premeditation and even tells us who the prisoner is so as to bring out the motive. Me? I'm dumb. That's from working with you. Hey, excuse me, Lieutenant. He arose and went to the table upon which lay the huge revolver. He paid no attention to Nan, who was still in the witness chair, but picked up the gun and faced the jury. This, ladies and gentlemen, is the murder weapon. With it, my client firmly believes he shot and killed Fred Fadden. It is a big gun. It kicks like the very devil when the cartridge explodes. You will all agree to that, I'm sure. However, the cartridge must contain its normal amount of effective powder. I shall give you a demonstration. He turned quickly and pointed the gun at a big upholstered chair. He pulled the trigger. There was an explosion, not too loud, and the smack of the slug against the upholstery. Byron waited until the hubbub died down, and then, before the judge could call him before the bench for this procedure, he dug the bullet out of the upholstery. He held it between his finger and turned the big chair around so the jury could see the back of it. Fred Fadden was killed by a bullet that crashed through his head and went on to wound the detective. It was a bullet fired from this gun. Can I ask you to know that the bullet I fired couldn't even go all the way through the padding of that chair? 
Why? Because I am prepared to prove this bullet was manufactured more than a quarter of a century ago and has lost much of its power. The DA was on its feet. We have proved the murder bullet came from that gun. Because one slug doesn't contain much powder, it doesn't mean another will act in the same manner. Clint Byron smiled. I think I'm right, yet I concede the murder bullet did actually come from this gun, but not at the time of the murder. The bullet was fired to get the barrel impressions on the lead retrieved and used in another type of weapon. I'm not sure just where that weapon is or what it is like, but I think we owe it to my client to have this angle investigated. He turned to face the spectator's gallery. He saw Alan Drake's set face. He saw George Conlon heading for the door. Stop that man, he called out peremptorily. Stop him, I say. Conlon was seized despite his protests. Byron saw the judge was about ready to explode. With a low bow to the DA, Byron clambered onto the bench and whispered in the judge's ear for a moment. The judge looked startled. Bailiff, the judge called. Lock the doors. No one is to leave this courtroom. Mr. Byron, you may proceed. And Mr. District Attorney, I want no interference from you. Byron grinned at the startled DA, walked over, and faced the jury. I ask that the jury leave the box and assemble near the large windows overlooking the front of this courthouse. You'll be able to see the scaffolding erected there and watch murder evidence revealed before your eyes. While you watch, I'll tell you a story. The jury didn't move until the judge ordered them to do so. Clint Byron warned them to be careful not be seen through the window. With the jury kneeling and peering out, the judge, the DA, and Bradley crouched beside another of the four big windows. All riveted their eyes on the scaffolding in plain sight below. My client did not murder Fadden. He had the motive. He premeditated the crime, and he actually went so far as to try and carry it out. The gun was furnished to him by George Conlon. Conlon was the go-between. He talked my client into committing the crime. My client, armed with the gun, did aim it and probably pulled the trigger, but the gun didn't go off because there was just an empty shell under the hammer. He was naturally excited, but if that gun had gone off, the kick would have caused him to remember it. The explosion of the prepared bullet came from another source. Look closely now. My client believed the explosion came from the gun he held, but it did not. He was in a half daze during all of this. His confession was made on the basis of honesty, but it is wrong. Watch now. They all saw Ross Allison, without bothering to don work clothes, clamber onto the scaffolding and set to work with a huge wrench. He was uncoupling a piece of steel pipe with an open end that was pointed at the spot where Fadden had fallen. Clint Byron nudged Lieutenant Bradley. Go get him, Lieutenant, before he hides or destroys the evidence. That pipe is really a shotgun. He wadded the bullet into it, holding it in place with a wad of wax paper. The bullet but the characteristic rifling of the big revolver was discharged without being marked any further. Allison wanted to kill Fadden because he hated him so, and to be absolutely certain he would die? Go on, Lieutenant, snap out of it. Bradley made a fast exit. They watched him approach Allison and saw the engineer reach toward his hip pocket. A service pistol appeared in Bradley's fist, and that was all there was to it. The jury filed back to its box. The judge resumed his seat on the bench. Young Page was alternately turning pink and white. That's correct! He shouted suddenly. Colin did give me the gun and encouraged me to kill Fadden. He said I could get away with it and he'd have preparations made to help me escape. I was to do the shooting on the 11th step from the top. He just wanted me to stop Fadden so that improvised shotgun could be pointed at him. Never was sure whether or not I'd fired. When the time came, I suddenly didn't want to become a murderer. Clint Byron faced the bench. Your Honor, I ask that the charge of murder against my client be dismissed. I ask that if the district attorney wishes to charge him with intent to murder, the court will accept the plea of guilty under extenuating circumstances and extend leniency. My client has suffered greatly. The DA cleared his throat. Uh, the state, Your Honor, withdraws the charge of murder against the accused. The state has time to prepare a warrant charging with intent to kill and agrees that if he cooperates against Ross Allison and George Conlon, the state will readily accept a mild penalty. Byron nodded in satisfaction. Your Honor, Ross Allison was afraid of Fadden. 
possibly wanted to murder himself or at least ensure his death in the event Harry Page balked when the time came. Therefore, he rigged this improvised shotgun containing the Mark bullet. Ross Allison is a grafter. With Fadden's help, he has cheated the city out of many thousands of dollars and Fadden would have talked about it. I suspected him when I realized he never did any manual work himself. Then the wad of wax paper, perforated with powder, added the evidence. Next, I discovered that Allison had been cheating, and then to top it all off, I found that Allison did not have a contract for the work he was doing on the outside of the courthouse. He simply went ahead as if the job had been ordered so he could rig his shotgun in the scaffolding. When I exposed the trick, Allison left the courtroom because he knew he had to get rid of that evidence. I hoped he would do that, so you might watch him at it. That's all, ladies and gentlemen. I'm grateful. To you also, Your Honor. The DA sidled over to Clint Byron. I intended adding you to my staff one of these days, Clint. But after that dirty trick, you can go hang. Byron sighed. He stopped young Page, walked over and grasped his arm. He piloted on into the judge's chambers. In a few moments, Page came out, his face beat red. Clint Byron emerged too, and he was limping. Once he stopped, raised his right foot and gently massaged it through the shoe. Then he saw Nandrake walking in his direction. She passed right by young Page and kept on coming. Byron automatically straightened his necktie and smiled. Being attorney for the defense wasn't so bad after all. And that is the end of Death of a Dead Man by Wayland Rice. Thanks for listening today. And just a reminder, if you like the show, please leave feedback on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. This has been a Brick Pickle Media production. We'll be back with a new episode next week.